0: Nothing but the blood of Jesus Christ. That's all that makes us uh, righteous before God, is uh, the great work that Christ has done for us. So we sing that truth to uh, embed it deep down in our hearts and pray that God's spirit will um, work it even deeper still and uh, produce great faith and trust and belief in uh, what he's done for us through his son Jesus. Who loves uh, reading biographies? Good fun, aren't they? Actually just reading about the life of a certain person and just seeing what they've experienced and how they've gone through all sorts of circumstances and challenges and um, it's just great to see the way they've dealt with that and particularly some Christian biographies to so I really get uh, a great joy in rooting that to see the way Christ has been formed in somebody's heart and life and the way they've gone through adverse trials and challenges and uh, remained faithful before Him and even sometimes failed and made mistakes but the way God's actually just uh, picked them up again and, and uh, got them going. <laughs> biographies are great things, and uh, nearly all biographies you read, though, end with a death and a funeral, don't they? Particularly if it's an historical one where somebody's either died or something's happened, and uh, that's how the biography ends, which is sort of fairly natural With you're reading about somebody whose life has been completed. Um, the Gospel accounts, which are like biographies as well, are very, very different to those biographies we've just been talking about. The the biography of Jesus Christ actually turns that whole idea of a death and a funeral right on its head. Now, the life of Jesus Christ doesn't end with a death, it doesn't end with a funeral. Actually, the life of Jesus Christ ends with the resurrection. In fact, it doesn't end, it just keeps on going and going and going. So, it's a different biography altogether. The resurrection of Christ actually is something that instills hope and courage into our lives. So join with me now as we just look into John chapter 20 and we get towards this resurrection chapter. And we'll just read from verses 19 to 29 to have a listen here. Starting at verse 19. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of anyone, they are forgiven. If you withhold forgiveness from anyone, it is withheld. Now, Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now, Father, thank you that we can come to John chapter 20 today and see this most remarkable supernatural event the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Lord, never ever happened before in human history. No other person is like Christ, Lord, he truly is that confession that Thomas has given to us today, my Lord and my God. Holy Spirit, we would ask and pray now that you would just come and breathe life into these words and uh, breathe life into our souls as we see here and reflect here upon the resurrection of Jesus Christ. May it today produce within us uh, hope and courage and belief. Father, we ask this in Jesus' name and for your glory. Amen. As we think about this undeniable fact of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we must keep in mind it's probably one of the most attacked beliefs by an unbelieving world that we live in. Uh, The resurrection of Christ is obviously very naturally linked with his death. There can be no no resurrection uh, unless a death has taken place. And just like the death of uh, Jesus on the cross is a foundational belief which we looked at last week, uh, for Christianity, so also is the resurrection. It's a foundational belief. It's pivotal pivotal in uh, the Christian faith that we believe in and follow. Paul actually says if there's no resurrection in Corinthians, then our faith and our preaching is absolutely in vain and futile. We are wasting our time if there's no resurrection. That really does become this key plank here in the Christian life. It is so key, it would be like this. If the, if the gospel and Christianity did not have the resurrection, It would be like trying to throw a tennis ball at a speeding train to stop it. It would be pretty useless, wouldn't it? Nothing would happen there at all. It's absolutely foundational. For most people, though, uh, their part in thinking about this, and people, I guess, including sceptics, they can live with the miracles that Jesus performed. They can actually sort of explain away how certain things can happen. You know, you don't know what was happening internally in somebody. And they can even put some sort of plausible, perhaps, explanation to that. Even walking on water... I've heard of, well, maybe it was low tide and Jesus was on a partially submerged sandbar. You know, they sort of would try and explain away the walk in the water as well. But when it gets to the resurrection, they actually can't take that at all. They just say, this is downright crazy. You guys are deluded. You guys are mad. And probably some feel sorry for us when we actually believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's like the real sticking point for people. They're saying nobody comes back from the dead. This just does not happen. Even Paul the Apostle, when he spoke to the intellectuals in Athens, he gave them a great discussion and a great talk about a creator God. And it talked about sending his son Jesus to the world. And he actually talked about this Jesus being resurrected from the grave, coming back from the grave. And the moment Paul mentioned the resurrection from the grave... A good number of them got up and laughed at him and walked out. They said, Paul, you're talking rubbish now, you're talking nonsense, you're off with the fairies. The resurrection of Christ is probably one of the most uh, solid facts of the Bible. It tells us even in Corinthians, again, there's at least 500 eyewitnesses who spoke to the living Christ after he'd come down from the cross, been put in the tomb for three days, and then walked around resurrected from that. Uh, 500. That's pretty convincing when it's like that. Also, the lives of the apostles, as we've heard many times before, who saw Jesus alive after his resurrection. Most of their lives ended up in martyrdom, purely for hanging on to the fact that we believe in Christ because we have seen him. They had an option to keep their life, just deny Christ, or go to the, whatever way they were being killed, purely for hanging on to the truth that they had seen the living, resurrected Jesus Christ. It is a life-changing truth. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is a hope-filled truth as well. And this is precisely what we're going to see today where John goes through as he describes these events surrounding the resurrection of Jesus Christ. What we'll see here is the resurrection absolutely changes these people involved here when they saw Christ. They are changed with a soul-strengthening power that has just got to be nothing short of Supernatural. And what it does for us is it delivers for us a whole new perspective on life. when We begin to think about the resurrection and what God has done there for us through Jesus Christ. Let's set the scene, though, first of what's taken place. Jesus has been crucified just a few days earlier. On the Friday, as we would know it, he's been crucified and brutally executed upon a Roman cross. The next day is the Sabbath or the Saturday. Uh, The whole place shuts down. The culture of the day was strictly... Bound by Sabbath rules that they had put into place, and a lot of those were created by themselves. God did say honour the Sabbath, but they took it to a whole new level uh, as far as that was concerned. Uh, There was no trade of shops, there was no work, there was no sort of enjoyment of sort of leisure activities. Actually, it was just a day of just about total nothingness. The place totally shut down. Sunday morning arrives, and what we are about to see is people resume their normal duties in the Jewish culture. And carry out the tasks and things they couldn't do the day before. Sunday morning arrived and uh, what we see then is Mary coming down to the grave to um, mourn for Jesus. You might say, was Mary coming down? The Jewish tradition was that the first three days, especially after a death, you would come and show your respect by mourning and grieving over the dead person. And uh, in that sense, Mary come down to support um Uh, Those who perhaps might have else been coming there, but all we have in John is say she's come down on her own at this particular time. And she was part of a group of other ladies who were supporting Jesus. Um, There's a whole bunch of them, about seven or eight, I think they were named at one particular point. But she's come down to show her respects and do this mourning and grieving uh, for Christ. Mary arrives and she sees this massive, huge stone has been rolled away. Now, that's a fairly significant thing in itself. Uh, It would take a number of people to roll the stone back. In those days, the stone would be actually put on an incline like this, and when the, bed, the dead person was put in, they would roll the stone back over the hole, so you'd have to push it uphill to get it actually up out of the way of the grave and sort of get entry or access into that point. So that's a significant thing, a significant thing in herself. She comes there and she finds the stone's been rolled away. She peers inside and she sees, hang on, Jesus is not there. She runs out quickly and goes to find Peter and John to say, hey... Somebody has taken the body of Jesus, our Lord. His, his body has been stolen, and someone's placed him somewhere else. Peter and John race down to see what's going, because they're thinking, "What on earth has happened?" We know he was put in the grave only two, uh, three days earlier. Peter and John race down. They go into the tomb and they discover that Jesus's grave clothes are all folded up and neatly placed on the stone slab. And they're thinking, "Okay, his grave clothes are here, but Jesus is not here." They then take off. Mary hangs around a bit longer and she's deeply grieving to think of what's happened to the body of Christ? Have grave robbers come and, and humiliated the body by stealing any things that may have been wrapped in and taken them away because that was a common thing that took place back then. It was actually to rob graves to get anything of value or worth that was put on the dead person. So she's there grieving about that thing. Have somebody come and stolen the body of Christ and even just further desecrated him? Mary sees these two... People that John describes to us as angels sitting on this stone slab where Jesus lay. And these two people, these angels, ask her, Mary, why are you weeping? Why are you grieving? She explains to them the missing body of Jesus. Someone's taken his body away. She then turns around and she sees another person who she thinks is the gardener, someone who's looking after this area. He's the gardener of this tombed area. And then in this incredible supernatural encounter with this gardener, which turns out to be Jesus, we find Mary having a revelation of who Christ is and what he's done. We pick it up there in verses 15, uh, just prior to our reading. Jesus said to her, that's Mary, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabbani, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. And Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. So Mary's had a revelation here of the risen Christ. Not initially, she thought Jesus was the gardener, but just in that incredible word that he spoke to her, Mary, Jesus is chosen there to reveal himself to Mary as the risen Christ. Mary's seen the risen Lord Jesus Christ. It's early in the morning and now she goes flat out to find the disciples and tell them he has risen. He's risen. And to say that Jesus is now looking for you guys and he's going to come and meet you. So now we move to the next two scenes here in chapter 20 that John describes for us here to help us pick up and see who Christ is uh, through this resurrection. So we can take it that Mary's told the disciples that Jesus is alive and well; he's coming to see them. Now we find the disciples in the evening of that day, when all that's taken place in the morning. We find the disciples gathered together that evening, and where do we find these disciples gathered? We find them gathered behind locked doors. It says there in verse 19: On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked, where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. Where are the disciples? They're behind locked doors and they're in fear. Fear's a terrible thing. It's a shocking thing. Fear's the most demoralising and draining thing to experience in your life. Fear is very debilitating. Fear drains you of your power. Fear drains you of your security and your confidence. Fear can sap the life out of you. Fear is a shocking thing. I can remember being a very young boy and having to do jobs outside in the dark. And you already know what's going to happen. You're already thinking about it. Uh, the dark is a fearful place when you're a young boy. And particularly when you go outside, you feel so weak and so vulnerable and so isolated because everything's dark and like everything's jumping from behind shadows. And what doesn't help is when you've watched a Dracula movie the night before. That's already planted quite a few things in your mind. So every, everything's like a vampire coming out of the trees at you. It's shocking. You just feel absolutely fearful and absolutely isolated. Well, I'm not sure these disciples saw a Dracula movie, but they are fearful and they're feeling pretty weak and pretty vulnerable right at this particular time. They're behind locked doors. They're worried about the Jews. They've just taken out our leader and now they're going to come and clean up the rest of his followers because you're all disturbing our sort of comfy lifestyle here as the religious leader. So they're fearful for their lives. Actually, they're going to take us out as well. The disciples probably also are totally deflated alongside this fear. The last three years they've spent with Jesus, watching him do amazing things, only things that God could do, supernatural events. And I'm sure in their mind leading up to this, that they had in their minds the long-awaited return of the Messiah, of God's kingdom, of Israel becoming the world's superpower once again. I'm sure for them they had big dreams about the future, as they could see this incredible leader, as it were, sort of rising up in very humble circumstances around about them. That's probably what was going through their mind prior to the death of Christ. But now they're fearful and they're behind locked doors, feeling all is lost. In steps the resurrected Jesus Christ to this situation. Jesus comes in and reveals himself in his resurrected body. Already showing some remarkable powers, the fact is they're in locked doors and they know who's in the room and somehow Jesus is now in the room. So somehow he has passed through solid walls and solid doors. There's already a sense of the resurrected Christ in a supernatural body beginning to uh, show itself. Can you imagine that experience? Maybe there was, obviously Thomas wasn't there, so maybe it could only have been 10 disciples together at that point. It's very easy to, to identify 10 people in a locked room. And all of a sudden someone else shows up in the middle. If they're already fearful about something else, they've probably got a new fear now. think, "Whoa, how did this guy get in here?" But Jesus comes in. Jesus is now with them, and he gives them a look firsthand at his wounds. He says there in verse twenty, he said, uh, when he said this piece to them, he said, "Show them, and he, he showed them his hands and his side." And the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. So he's actually said, "Hey, it's me. Here it is. I can show you the nail prints. I can show you these wounds." And not only does Jesus do this, but he also speaks a word to them as well. Twice Jesus says leading up to this, Peace be with you in both verses 19 and verse 21. And even further down the track, he does it with um, uh, Thomas as well. Peace be with you. Jesus knows exactly where these guys are at. He knows the fears that they're experiencing at this time. And he speaks a word of peace. Something amazing, though, is taking place in the hearts of the disciples. Look at the response they have. Here, when they see the Lord. It says it there in uh, verse 20. The disciples then were glad when they saw the Lord. You see this is what the resurrection is about. And this is what we've got to see about the resurrection. The resurrection of Christ truly is a life changing event. It was life changing for these disciples as they experienced it firsthand. For these disciples now who've been living and fear and sort of tension and anxiety, I can imagine now it's beginning to turn from fear into hope, fear into courage, or fear into some form of power. They're actually beginning to discover that Jesus has lived up to the very things that he'd said, because he said previously in John ten eighteen he said this to them, no one takes it from me, talking about his life, but I lay it down of my own accord, I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I've received from my Father. Behind locked doors and even in a fearful state, they're now beginning to get a, a, an appreciation and a realization who this Jesus is. He says, I have the authority to lay it down, I have the authority to take it up. They probably didn't fully understand that when he said it at the time, but now they're beginning to say, Hey, we saw him dead three days ago, and here he is. He said he would take his life up again of his own accord. Now, sometimes I've got to wonder about these guys, and I would probably be no different to myself, that Jesus actually had told them previously three times that he would die and he would rise again. So it's probably just slowly, slowly, slowly coming upon them. But I think it is beginning to dawn upon them just who Christ is. And with this dawning now, there is hope and there is courage coming with that. And that's precisely what the truth of the resurrection should do within us. It should produce hope and courage as we think on and reflect on the resurrected Jesus. As we face life with its fears and worries, and there's plenty of those, that truth should bring us hope and should bring us courage. The resurrection tells us that Jesus' offering or payment for our sin has been totally accepted and completed, that we have nothing to fear, that God's received Jesus' payment in our place and that we are com- totally confident that all of our sin is forgiven. And this brings a glorious hope hope to us this hope tells me now assuredly i have nothing to fear in my life nothing whatsoever as paul tells us in romans 8 based on this truth of the resurrection of christ he says this uh, romans 8:38 for i am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate me from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This comes from the resurrection. You could even put Draculas and vampires in there if you wanted to. Nothing will separate me from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the truth of the resurrection. This is the unbreakable hope that it brings to us as we think about what's been achieved for us by Christ. This same hope is infused into our hearts by the Holy Spirit to give us the same strength, truth and courage. The next scene that John gives us in chapter 20 is another picture that many of us can find ourselves in as well as we think about this resurrection. This is a picture here of unbelief or doubt that we see here in our good friend Thomas. Now The disciple Thomas wasn't with the other guys in the initial meeting of Jesus when he came in there through those locked doors. But I'm sure they've all told Thomas about that. Hey, Thomas, we have seen the Lord. You won't believe this. And he's going to tell us a minute he doesn't believe it. You won't believe this, but we have seen him. They would be super excited about it. But Thomas gives them a very clear understanding of just how he's thinking about this situation with them at the moment and how he's travelling through life trying to grasp or grapple with this. And he says to them in verse 25, So the other disciples told him, Hey, we have seen the Lord. But unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Thomas is pretty emphatic here about his thoughts. He says, I will never believe. Thomas is a serious sceptic. He is full of doubt. And you may have heard him before referred to as doubting Thomas. He doubts the resurrection of Christ and he's a sceptic about it. He says, I will never believe this. Thomas, in a respect, nearly typifies all of humanity in his attitude here. How often have you said, said it um, this way, or heard it said this way, I'll believe it when I see it. It's like I want to see some physical proof. I want to see something that I can taste or touch or smell or hear or see. Something that my five senses can actually, you know, physically sort of somehow apprehend. Plenty of times I've heard that statement. I'll believe it when I see it. And that's exactly what Thomas has uh, said to us here as well. This is where we need to see what sin has done to our spiritual vision or our eternal perspective. It's actually broken our vision of an invisible God. It's actually broken our perspective of a spiritual world. That's exactly what sin has done to us. Now we are trapped by living in our, what our senses see, us, see around us. Our sight and our thought perceptions are all based on earthbound Concepts or earthbound ideas. We are trapped in thinking by this world around about us. All I know is this world. All I can see is this world. And when we begin to think like that, the world's ideas shape the way we form our views on life. Thomas is earthbound in his thinking. And this makes him, just as we see him here, sceptical and full of doubt. I'll believe it when I see it. Well, eight days transpires and here Jesus shows up again to the disciples. We pick it up in verses 26-27 Eight days later his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them, although the doors were locked. So there's still actually a bit of fear these guys. Jesus came and stood among them and said peace be with you Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side Do not disbelieve but believe as I said, these guys are a little bit slow learners here. Doors locked again. But notice what Jesus does here with Thomas. Jesus very compassionately singles him out and shows him his wounds. Thomas, see my wounds. Put your hand out and touch my side. Feel these things. Thomas, look and touch. See that it's really me. See that it was really me who was on that cross three days earlier. And see that I am really now alive and I've risen from the grave. Thomas, look and believe. He tells Thomas, Thomas, do not deny the undeniable. Do not hide behind your unbelief. Here it is, I am right before your very eyes. And he firmly urges him, Thomas, put your trust and your faith in me. And put your trust and your faith in the resurrection that I've achieved from the grave. It's a reality, Thomas. How does Thomas respond in this situation to Jesus, as Jesus urges him in this way. Thomas answers him in verse twenty eight, My Lord and my God. Probably one of the greatest confessions that we'll read in the Bible here. And that's something if ever you're talking with Jehovah's Witnesses, they don't believe that Jesus is God. Here's Thomas's confession that he says, and Jesus doesn't actually push that away. He receives it and accepts it because he knows he is God. An incredible confession that he makes. And this is another truth that the resurrection brings to our soul. It brings life-building faith in the one who's died for us. in the one who has given up his life on the cross so that now he has resurrected and he promises that same resurrection for us. It does build our faith. And Jesus takes it a step further here with Thomas. He's actually talking to us in this next verse that he talks about. He says to Thomas, Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. That's including every one of us today who believe in Jesus Christ, who believe in the resurrection. Blessed are those who have not seen yet believe. It's an unexplainable blessing, but it's a blessing that God gives to us. As we believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, God blesses us with a peace and a profound conviction of faith in the reality of who Jesus is and what he has done for us that we can comprehensively trust in Christ. And he's proved this by his resurrection. The resurrection dispels our doubts away. The resurrection of Christ dispels my unbelief. How can I not trust in the Son of God who's proved himself to be so by this resurrection? And we would be foolish today to turn our hearts away from such compelling evidence that is presented for us through Scripture, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus says, let your faith be built, let your belief be built on the true fact of my resurrection. As I thought about this resurrection today and I thought about what Christ has done, and I thought about the disciples and I thought about Thomas and then I thought about Father's Day as I try to pull those things together. <coughs> I was thinking as fathers, there is much that can challenge us in carrying out the role that God's given to us as fathers. It's a tremendous responsibility that uh, we carry to lead and to guide our families uh, to a God-centred life and a gospel-empowered life. Living that type of life or leading that type of life as fathers can bring both fear and doubt to us. It can bring fear and it can bring doubt. The world we live in is an overloaded world with really, really good things for us to do as families. Mate, there is all types of entertainment out there. There's all types of things we can get involved in, events to go to, really unusual places to visit, just heaps of things for us to do as families for fun and enjoyment. And for today's modern transport, it's so convenient to get to these things and go to these things to enjoy all of this life. But there's a danger in that. There's a danger in that. There's a danger that we get taken along with the culture we live in by allowing all these good times and good things to be taken over and filled up in our lives where they become the primary focus of how we live and how we, how we live out life by pursuing these good times. It's like pursuing all this fun and all these good times and chasing the next best thrill is all what life is about. Now, don't get me wrong about enjoying this world. I enjoy this world very much so, and it's a good thing to do. But it's so easily we can let a good thing become a bad thing when the good thing becomes the main driving focus of life. I'll say it again. We can easily let a good thing become a bad thing when the good thing becomes the main driving focus of our life. I know of a family who used to trip around the countryside pursuing their dreams of sporting achievements with their kids a great thing, sport's a really good thing, active for your body, healthy, all sorts of things. We've got a son who plays basketball and football, I've got three girls who play netball, Uh, it's a fantastic thing, it's a great thing. But when it becomes the primary focus or the driving goal of my life to pursue sporting achievements for this example, it can become a bad thing. With this family i am talked about, as I know, uh, they followed more and more the sporting bandwagon. They were going here, there, and everywhere, chasing representative sport, doing all types of things. And with that, noticeably, their commitment to Jesus began to fall away. And now, today, sadly, as I think about that family and think about where some of their kids are, uh, most of their kids have no interest in Christ whatsoever. Now, I'm not putting it specifically on sport, but it was certainly a contributing influence in that situation and what we could see was this become a driving thing for them it was a good thing that had become a bad thing and you see here as a father we need to assess this situation the father needs to stop and think clearly through what's happening and ask himself where is all this focus heading at the moment this can be a fearful thing to do a very difficult thing to do a challenging thing to do Because as we assess what's happening, it will dawn upon us that maybe too much of a good thing is now leading us and distracting us away from Christ and away from the centrality of the gospel in our lives. And then I've got to think, how do I stop this or how do I slow this down? How do I get the balance right again? Courage is required here to make that decision. Because that decision will probably go against the flow of culture that we live in. The culture will say, hey, you're doing a great thing. Your family's enjoying weekends away together and you're doing all this together and it's, it's creating fun and excitement. Man, you're really, really busy, but gee, your family's together and that's, that's a good thing. So the culture will think, hey, you're doing the right thing. But as a father, we'll stop and we'll think, hang on, this is starting to dominate my life now. This is starting to dominate the life of my family. How will I get these things back into balance? This is where the resurrection of Jesus Christ becomes invaluable for us. The resurrection of Christ gets my focus back onto the really big things of life and the most important things of life. Sport's fine, no problems at all, but it's not the biggest thing in life. It's not the primary thing in life. The resurrection speaks of Jesus' victory over sin and death in this life on my behalf. The, The resurrection actually speaks to me and reminds me that there's another world coming. And what's done in this world determines where I'll be in the next world or the next life. The resurrection realigns my vision. It refocuses me to an eternal perspective. Not like Thomas, who was earthbound in his thinking, trapped in all he could see was around about him at the time and not thinking with a bigger picture perspective. The resurrection for fathers brings an eternal perspective here as we think about where we are leading our families. And when something fearful or challenging comes our way, The resurrection gives me courage to say, no, there's a greater life beyond this life that I need to think about so I can steer and guide my families and my family in the right direction so they too will share that eternity with me. Maybe even doubts will come with that, that challenge, as I'm making those decisions. Have I done the right thing? Have I really actually thought through this. Will my children be able to see that I'm doing the right thing? Because they all might be whinging and complaining now. Why are we not doing those things anymore? And this is potentially going to make us look different to other families because they're all going off and doing that and we're doing something different to them. Doubts will come in. Am I doing the right thing? Have I made the right decision? Have I gone in the right direction? Again, the resurrection comes in and Jesus Christ figures deeply in my mind The Holy Spirit convicts me of this truth of the resurrection. And yes, Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And this has been proven by his resurrection from the grave. And what Jesus says is true. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Yes, I must follow Christ primarily in my life, first and foremost, to get my focus right for the rest of my life. And takes those doubts away. You see, the story of Christ is an incredible biography. We spoke about those other biographies that end with a death or a funeral. But the story of Jesus Christ doesn't end. It actually just takes off from a resurrection to eternal life. And the resurrection speaks incredible courage, incredible hope and incredible faith into our lives as we allow that truth to dawn upon us. And it gives us as fathers courage and hope and strength to make those right decisions, even when good things become bad things. The resurrection of Christ realigns our focus and gives us the courage to make those right calls. Let's pray. Father, we thank you today that uh, we have the truth of the resurrection. Father, we thank you today that your Holy Spirit has revealed that to us through the pages of Scripture, but also through a living reality of Christ dwelling within our hearts uh, through the new birth. Lord, today we thank you that we have a hope that is eternal. We have a hope that is secure. We have a hope that is absolutely testified to us by the resurrection of Christ. Lord, today as we think about fathers, we think about the challenges that we face as fathers. Lord, some days are like decision after decision after decision. And sometimes you're the most unpopular person in the family because of the decisions we have to make. Lord, I pray that you'll help us to take hold of the truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And allow that to build deep convictions into our hearts. That it would give us strength and courage and hope to lead our families to a God-honouring and a gospel-centred life that really does look at the eternal perspective. That really does help us to set up and to shape our families as best we possibly can to prepare them for Christ. Lord, today I pray that when we Do that and sometimes we'll make mistakes in doing that, Lord. I pray that we'll have the courage even then to uh, say sorry to our family if we've made decisions that have been too hard or too harsh. But I pray also, Lord, that our families would see that we're doing that with the best interests in our hearts, intending, Lord, to lead our families to Christ. Lord, today I pray that you'd help us, Lord, to be like Thomas, not in the sense of his doubting, but, Lord, to see that revelation. Perhaps for some, the first time today, that Jesus Christ is alive, that he is truly the Son of God, and that he is able to fulfil his word without fail. Holy Spirit, please take that truth today, I pray, and firmly embed it into our hearts. And Lord, I pray that you would give us great hope and great courage from it. Now, Lord, we ask and we pray that now in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll just have the uh, singers come up to close with the song. Thanks. Uh, If anybody, again, would uh, like some prayer or to catch up with me post-service, we'll be more than glad to catch up with you. Thanks. Let's stand and we sing the glories of Calvary.